Our gospel lesson is from the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. The Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. When I was with you about a month ago, we were discussing, looking at Romans 8 and Romans 7. And I pointed out to you how a 5th century priest, bishop, theologian bequeathed to the Western Church all of Western Christianity. And we are descendants of that church a rather wrong-headed and very, very pessimistic reading of Paul's letter to the Romans, especially in regard to Romans 7 and 8. Thanks to St. Augustine, these two chapters came to be separated, and because of that separation, a rather schizophrenic interpretation followed. And as I said on those Sundays past, the liberty bell that Paul was ringing stopped sounding. If that were not bad enough, let me also point out to you another unfortunate move made by interpreters of Romans. Another unfortunate separation that is commonplace in the many commentaries on this wonderful book. And here is the second separation. Romans 1 through 11 are seen as the largest and best part of the letter. They are a rather long theological treatise by St. Paul, say the commentators, where he serves up a fine and wonderful theological main dish, a main dish of prime rib and Madeira sauce and all the good things that go with prime rib, such as garlic mashed potatoes, Brussels sprouts. So it's fun to munch on and good to take in Romans 1 through 11. 
But once that main course is over, so beginning with chapters 12 through the end of the book, commentators say Paul moves on. He leaves the theological heavy lifting behind, and in these closing chapters, he serves up a light dessert course, which consists largely of not peaches and cream, but just little sprinkles like my granddaughter loves to put over cookies and cupcakes, you know, those things that come in a jar. So Paul just sprinkles on some sprinkles here in the closing chapters of the book. He gives some nice practical advice and encouragement, but they come in little separated bits and pieces. This is a bad move. No, 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 I say. Because Paul himself gives a clue that chapter 12 and what follows is to be read and to remain connected with all the stuff that preceded it. And the clue to that is he uses a very special Greek word. Sophroneo. That word was used a lot in Paul's day. Over and over and over Again, in fact, it is the second most important word used in that large, well-known Greco-Roman discourse on happiness, self-mastery. The word means to think well, rationally, which is what everyone seeking self-mastery wanted, a change of mind that they might be able to overcome the passions and desires of the flesh. So what I'm telling you is Paul here in Romans 12 is continuing his long and very hopeful discourse exposition on liberty, on happiness, a true and profound happiness that comes as God's gift to humanity. Especially you, you Gentiles, you. Viewed as a whole, viewed from a distance, Romans, all of it, tells the story of sin, salvation, problem, solution, punishment, and reward. And it tells it as the story of loss and then the recovery of self-mastery and happiness. Romans is not simply about how you get to be saved, how your sins come to be forgiven, how you might live in eternity with God. It is about the recovery of something wonderful. That is salvation according to Romans. Paul tells a delightful narrative of how God's righteous action through Jesus Christ has brought about, has brought into this world, this very broken world, a renewal. And this renewal, as Paul sees it, is about being gifted by the Spirit with new and beautiful minds, which makes it possible to be transformed, to be disciplined, and to have yourself, all of you, integrated. This, you see, is about recovering something that was lost way back in Genesis 1 to 4. 
And what was lost was the image of God in which we were made. It was lost because of the sin and wrongheadedness of that first man and first woman, Adam and Eve. I urge you then, brothers and sisters, by God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, as worship suited to your new rational nature. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transfigured by the renewal of your minds, your very thinking, so that you may approve and embrace God's desires. That is what is good, what is acceptable, and what is mature. I love that description of the new self, the new you, the new me. We still possess bodies, but these bodies now become a holy and living sacrifice to God. We lived with transformed minds. We think differently. We see differently. We act differently. We engage in rational worship and service that is pleasing to God. And in all things, we exercise self-mastery, self-control. What Paul is describing with this list is a renewed humanity, a liberated humanity. In contrast to the old humanity, trapped in the sin of that first man, Adam, and yes, Eve as well. Both of them who were mastered and controlled by unholy desires and passions. Who knew the good, but chose something else. Old humanity, new humanity. Now let me also point out that Paul was a very skilled writer. A very thoughtful one. So this list that is before us this morning from Romans 12 uses words, terms, to purposely contrast the new renewed people of God and the rest of humanity about whom Paul says a great deal in the very beginning of the letter in Romans 1. So if you have been following along, keep one finger in the Pew Bible in Romans 12 and turn to Romans 1. In Romans 1, in the close of Romans 1, Paul describes a dehumanizing process that took place long, long ago and which gave birth to the old you, the old me, and sinners everywhere. What he is doing in Romans 1 is reworking the creation story and the fall story found in Romans, I'm sorry, Genesis 1 through 4. 
So he takes that old story about Eden and Adam and Eve and temptation and the fall and he adjusts it a bit to make it fit within that framework, that Greco-Roman framework about happiness and self-mastery. So here are some of the things Paul says about most of humanity. By that I mean dehumanized, dehumanized creatures of God. He says they have degraded their bodies. They have base minds. Their understanding is darkened. They love, worship, and serve idols. They have become enslaved to their unholy passions. And they are full of arrogance. So what is Paul doing? The beginning of the letter? And here in Romans 12, he's drawing a contrast. Romans 1 depicts dehumanized creatures of God. Romans 12 depicts renewed, humanized, humanized, or let me say rehumanized creatures of God. Taken together, we have Paul's story of the origin of sin and his story of redemption. So let me draw these two chapters together. We have what engineers might call a dipole. One positive, one negative. Romans 12 is the positive pole. Romans 1 is the negative pole. And here are the contrast. In one, dehumanized creatures of God have degraded bodies. Romans 12, they have bodies that are holy, acceptable sacrifices to God. In Romans 1, dehumanized humanity has a darkened sense, confused thinking. Romans 12, rehumanized creatures of God think differently with their new transformed minds. Romans 1, dehumanized humanity practices idolatry. Romans 12, rehumanized humanity practices rational worship of the one true God. In Romans 1, old humanity lived out of degraded passions. In Romans 12, the people of God now live with self-control, self-mastery. In Romans 1, they were arrogant. In Romans 12, if you were to continue in your reading, you would see that we are to live humbly. Did you write all those contrasts down? Oh, I wish I could write as well as Paul. This, that. These two chapters belong together, you see. So Paul, here in 12, chapter 12 of Romans, as he is drawing his letter to a close, is saying to his readers, Welcome back to the human race as God first made it and as He intended it to be. Welcome to a renewed humanity. Welcome to a new life. Welcome to happiness. Because thanks 
to Christ, the image of God in which you were made is now yours again. Thanks be to God. But along with this lovely description of the new life, I have to tell you, Paul points out or sounds out a warning. He says very pointedly and directly and strongly, do not be conformed to this world. Do not let your thinking be shaped by the wisdom of this age. Do not be co-opted by worldly wisdom. Why? Because it is imperfect. It is in many ways foolish. And it is passing away. And do not be conformed to this world because much of the thinking that goes on in the world, in the minds of real human beings, is, Paul says back in Romans 1, muddled, befuddled, and confused. Except, of course, at two fine laboratories here in New Mexico, Sandia and Los Alamos. But you get Paul's point. Most of the stuff that goes on in the world is wrong-headed. Wrong-headed. What is the source of this wrong-headedness, this confusion? Paul tells us again back in Romans 1. It is due to the turning from the truth of God to the worshiping of idols. Going down the slipper slide from knowing God to stupidly worshiping dumb idols. For Paul, the confusion comes from an age-old problem, the one you hear about more than any other in the Old Testament, idolatry. Idolatry. God's people have always flirted with made-up, self-invented gods. And let me expand on my definition of idolatry. It is turning away, it is turning away from the life and future God wants for you. That is His wise version of true happiness to pursuing a life and a future of your own selfish making. You want that again? turning away from the life and future God has in store for you that once He wants for you His version of happiness to pursuing your own version of happiness. And so humanity has a problem. Through the centuries they fashioned their idols, gods, all of them, with a little g. And they bowed down before them. They fed them with their sacrifices. They threw their money at them. They whispered in their ear so that idol that God might give them the future they wanted. What's the real problem with idols? Well, they can never deliver what they promise. They just can't. They never could. They never will. And so to cling to these self-made idols is, Paul says, the epitome of stupidity. Oh, of course, we modern people, 
we would never sketch out, draw, design, fashion, erect an idol of stone or bronze or silver or gold, would we? Of course not. We would never give an idol we had made a name. We wouldn't bow down before it and worship it. We wouldn't sacrifice to it, would we? Of course not. We know better. But it's still a problem in the modern world because we can and we do give our allegiances to all the movements, all the ideologies, all the parties, our allegiance, because they promise us a better future than the one we have right now. We hear the voices, we embrace the personalities, just about any one of them, as long as they promise us safety, security, and happiness and a better future. Now, let me point out to you that idols do not always and only have to do with the future, with tomorrow. Okay? Yes, they can promise you the coming of a glowing, wonderful, golden, better future. But idols also can promise you Oh, they'll bring back, I will bring back for you the golden age of long ago when life was, oh, oh, so much better. Take your pick. Idols can hold the future out to you or they can hold out to you the golden past and how grand and glorious it was and we will have it back once again. And if you want a recent example, take the idols fashion from the myths of Aryan supremacy and lost causes in my home state of Virginia. Foolishness! Well, let's go back to Romans 12 so I can conclude my rambling with one important final observation about the new you and the new me. I've already told you that Paul extols this new outlook that comes from a new way of thinking, from transformed and beautiful minds. But what really is this thinking? What shapes it? What is it like? He lifts up in another letter a perfect, perfect example of this new outlook, this new, different, cognitive process. Paul says in Philippians, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, 
though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being bound, found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. There you have it, folks, how Christ thought as he walked this earth. And if you missed it, Here's the dominant focus of Christ's own mind and life. Humility, humility, humility. A wonderful virtue, habit of character that we all should possess. How did Christ come by his humility. There are other passages in the New Testament that help us with that. It was because he was able to look beyond and outside of this world. To see beyond it. He was able to look into heaven, into eternity itself. And looking there, he could see the life surrounding the throne of God and what it was like. He saw that life and he knew, he knew God wanted to give that life back to humanity. Hebrews puts it this way, for the joy that was set before him. That is, he's looking to his future. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus did what he did with all humility because he could see the future God wanted and still wants today for all humanity. God wants us to have his image back. He gazed into that future, saw what God's plan was. With his humility and with his death, he brought that life to us. And again I say, thanks be to God. My friends, Forget the foolishness, the pastoral advice that you've heard before. Like, what did Jesus do? Copy it. Concentrate less on that. Concentrate less on how Jesus thought and try to duplicate it. Instead, the starting place for you and to me is to see to see as Jesus saw, to look into eternity, to look into that marvelous glory of the Father. See what He saw. And if you can and do, I guarantee you, you will be humbled. You will be transformed. You will be blessed with a beautiful mind and life and liberty and happiness. Just look.
Look into eternity. See it for what it is. And bring that eternity into today. That's what Paul is saying here in Romans. Now, not too many days ago, a friend, I'm happy to count him as a friend, a member of this congregation, stopped by to see me because he was leaving on a trip with his dear wife. They were traveling to Idaho, where he hoped he would be able to see and be awed by that total solar eclipse and hopefully capture some nice photos of that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And as he was leaving, he reached into his pocket and he shared with me a gift. He gave me new glasses. So that I could see, I could see the awesomeness of that event. Sadly, though, where I was on that Monday of the eclipse, it was a place of where I was socked in. Only clouds. These were no good. They didn't work. My friends, put on your glasses. Put on the glasses that will allow you to see the majesty and glory of God himself. And the glasses aren't made of paper and special foil. They are simply the lenses of faith. With faith, look into eternity. Peer into it. Into the dazzling, transforming brilliance of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that what you see there, you might bring and work into your life today. And in your life, find liberty, find happiness, and humility. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.